Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North is sponsored by Audible. Do you like getting information through your ears? Well, Audible has an unmatched catalog of audio, podcasts, and original programming. And you can try it for 30 days free by going to audibletrial.com slash hollywoodnorthpod. Listeners to this podcast might enjoy listening to One Dumb Guy, Paul Meyer's authorized biography of The Kids in the Hall, or the Audible original podcast Highly Legal, hosted by Jay Baruchel and written by kids biographer John Semley. But if you're signing up for Audible today, and I pray that you do, if you're signing up for Audible today and you're going to download just one book for free, I'm going to recommend Steve Martin's autobiography, Born Standing Up, as read by the author. You like comedy, you like show business history, so you need to read this book. I remember when I first got it in 2008, I was working at the Canadian Screen Training Centre, and I read it every day walking to and from work. I would hold the book straight out in front of me, thinking this was the safer way to walk and read. I could see traffic, I could see people coming at me, but everyone knows the safest way to walk and read is to listen to an audiobook. So sign up for Audible today by going to audibletrial.com slash hollywoodnorthpod. That's audibletrial.com slash hollywoodnorthpod. You can find the link in the show notes. Remember, your first book is free, and you can cancel any time. But signing up through that link really helps this podcast. Now on with the show. Toronto, 1984. Life was pretty good for Kevin McDonald. He had found a group of like-minded people in Dave Foley, Bruce McCullough, Mark McKinney, Luke Casimiri, Gary Campbell, and Frank Van Keegan. It was a group that could talk long into the night about their favorite Woody Allen movies, SCTV sketches, and dissect the work of Monty Python. They even performed comedy together, taking the stage at the Poor Alex Theatre, the Ritz, Theatre Sports, and other clubs around Toronto, and it was all very bohemian. Kevin was even sharing an apartment with Gary and Frank. In Paul Meyer's book on the kids in the hall, One Dumb Guy, Gary recalls that in this apartment, he slept on the floor in a sleeping bag, and in the middle of the night, would wake up with cockroaches crawling all over him. But for Kevin, who lived and breathed comedy, who went to bed thinking of Buster Keaton and woke up with Gene Wilder on his mind, he was living in his version of Paris in the 1920s. He was surrounded by hyper-talented people, and they were making stuff together. He was thinking about this as he was walking down Queen Street West toward his apartment in the Toronto neighborhood of Parkdale. When you Google Parkdale today, the following description pops up. Lively Parkdale is a multicultural residential neighborhood with wide, pedestrian-friendly sidewalks and colorful street art. Hip locals frequent the vintage stores, indie boutiques, and galleries on Queen Street West. Sounds pretty good. If you're looking to buy in the neighborhood today, well, you need north of a million dollars to crack the market. I used to live in Parkdale in 2013, and I remember realtors trying to make Low Row a thing. That's Laura Roncesvalles, a main strip in Parkdale. I'm not sure if it ever stuck, but in 1984, Parkdale was an entirely different neighborhood. It was more the place for this. What you need? Uh, one, please. One what? Uh, one, one rock of one crack. One crack. A crack rock. As Kevin made his way home that night, walking up Queen West, readying to turn the corner towards his apartment, he saw the familiar strobing of red and blue lights coming from the mouth of his street. The cops must be busting someone, he thought. But as he rounded the corner, he was met with the unwelcome sight of yellow police tape across the front entrance of his building. For a second, Kevin considered turning on his heels and just finding somewhere else to sleep that night. But he didn't. He approached one of the cops standing outside and asked if he could go into his apartment. You live here? Kevin told him he did. Just watch your step, the cop warned him. There's a severed finger on the floor near the entrance. Ah, Paris. 
From Knockabout Media, I'm Ryan Barnett, and this is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North, the podcast in which we deep dive into the history behind your favorite CanCon. This is the second installment of our five-part series on the Kids in the Hall. Last time, Kevin and Mark got kicked out of school, Bruce and Dave discovered improv, and Scott found his destiny from the audience of a ragtag comedy show at the Poor Alex Theatre. This is episode two, Fast Times at the Rivoli. I'm Englewood Humperdinck. Here's my latest album, recorded for all my friends in Canada. Engelbert Humperdinck with Love, a beautiful new album from Quality Records. I think you'll really enjoy this album, but it's only in the stores for a short time. So hurry and get your copy. Engelbert Humperdinck with Love from Quality Records. It's in stores now. Now, back to our program. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. American eyes were on Toronto as a font of comedic talent. It started when Dan Aykroyd moved from the stage of Second City Toronto to taking over television screens live from New York on Saturday nights. By the early 80s, he was a bona fide movie star, headlining hits like the Blues Brothers and Trading Places. The year after SNL premiered, SCTV hit the global television network. It's Second City Television, now beginning its programming day. It had a slow start, initially airing just once a month on regional TV. But by 1981, SCTV had broken through in the United States, even earning attention from the Emmy Awards. And the winner is... (laughs) The... The majority, moral majority show of SCTV Network. And the timing couldn't have been better. The cast of SCTV, which included John Candy and Eugene Levy, were everywhere in American movies in the next decade. It seemed for a while that comedians were our greatest export, and that Toronto was a comedy town. The truth be told, it was a tale of two stages. If you're a stand-up, Yuck Yucks is where you went. If you're a sketch player, you had Second City. But spots were finite, troop numbers were capped. Stage time was almost non-existent outside of these two places. That is until comedian Brian Nazimok started a comedy showcase Monday nights in the back of the Rivoli, a Queen West bar and music venue. There was nothing to it, just a black room where comedians could find stage time and experiment. For Mark and Bruce, Monday nights at the Rivoli offered the potential for recreating what they had left behind in Calgary. As members of the troupe known as The Audience, they had had a regular late-night gig at the Loose Moose. Hungry comedy fans would line up around the block to see them. Since relocating to Toronto, they were eager to recreate that success, but they'd have to wait. At first, The Audience and the Kids in the Hall were invited as guests of Nazimok, and then as kind of repertory players. They'd play between stand-up acts like Norm Macdonald, or eventually play with visiting guest performers, which included Scott Thompson, the student who had assaulted them with donuts so many months ago. But it was an instant recognition. 
some nights they might be playing for an audience of four. The success that Mark and Bruce were eager to recreate wasn't coming, at least not right away. But what they were able to do in those shows was right. As they flyered downtown Toronto, the kids advertised the show as a new hour. Like SNL, they were generating a new hour-long show every week. However, they had a rule that they could not repeat characters or material. It's kind of a long-standing joke with SNL that if a sketch or character hits, the show will run it into the ground. From the Coneheads to Two Wild and Crazy Guys, all the way up to today in sketches like What's Up With That. Lorne Michaels, SNL's longtime executive producer, knew that it's hard enough to produce comedy at that pace without hamstringing yourself with arbitrary rules. It wasn't hack to return to characters or premises. It was smart. But for the audience and the kids, Bruce in particular, it was a non-starter. The group was resolved never to repeat itself. They acted as though they were preparing for something, but had you asked any given member of the group at the time, it's unlikely they would have shared the same idea of their destiny. It's Thursday night. The kids in the hall and the audience are holed up in the apartment shared by Kevin, Gary, and Frank. It's a writing night, and they're trying to hammer out their new hour, which is set to be performed live in just a few days. Gary answered the phone. Hello? This is Gary. Yes? Really? <laughs> That's... <laughs> thank you. Th- thank you. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you. Yes. Uh, I- I'll tell him. Thanks again. Gary hung up the phone, and by that point he had the attention of the entire room. That was the producer of the Comedy Jam. They just offered me and Frank writing jobs. Holy shit was the collective sentiment. Someone had broken through and managed to find a job, an actual job in comedy. And then Gary added, (laughs) They offered us $710 a week. That took a minute for the news to wash over the ad hoc group. That was real money in the early 80s, especially for sketch performers. These were minimum wage workers in their off hours. Kevin, for instance, was an usher at a movie theater. Fuck, Bruce thought. He was the best writer there. Why were these two getting a job? Gary and Frank left, the whole group kind of parted ways. They were down to five and divided across two established troops. Dave, Kevin, and Luke did some radio work, with Mark eventually joining the fun. Then Luke had a falling out with Mark and left the gig. So that left Mark, Dave, Kevin, and Bruce. The four began considering a return to the Rivoli, 
as a unified troop. But there was one thing still to be settled. What should they call themselves? Both Bruce and Mark were attached to their name, The Audience. They still liked the subversion of expectations and the laugh it elicited. But the kids in the hall, the connection to Sid Caesar and all of his writers, it was an evocative name. It was not an easy thing for Kevin and Dave just to give up. So how did they resolve the issue? They flipped a coin and the kids in the hall went out. But still the chemistry felt off with just four. They weighed options for a fifth member. This included Scott Thompson, his Love Cats troop member Tim Sims, and a 21-year-old Mike Myers, a friend of Dave's from their Second City workshops. What happened was, and this comes directly from Paul Myers' book, One Dumb Guy, the kids had had a particularly bad night at the Rivoli. They ate shit on stage and they were in a cab after the show. They passed Scott Thompson on the street and pulled over. Mark stuck his head out of the cab window and said, Hey Scott, do you want to be in the kids in the hall? Scott looked up and said, Yeah. And the troupe began singing The Kids Are Alright by The Who, which they had been using as their entrance theme. Standing there on Queen West, Scott Thompson, who just months before had declared his intentions of joining the troupe, but never made his overtures known to its members, began to cry. I think it's important to note here that not one of the kids in the hall had a backup plan. Dave Foley had dropped out of high school, Bruce out of college, Mark and Kevin had been kicked out of their post-secondary institutions, and York University had just kindly asked Scott Thompson to leave because he was, quote, disruptive. Gary Campbell and Frank Van Keegan had moved on to greener pastures, greener to the tune of $710 a week. By this point, even Mike Myers had moved to the UK to pursue comedy in the homeland of Peter Sellers and Monty Python. But the kids in the hall were still at the Rivoli, and they weren't drawing a crowd. They felt confident in what they were doing, despite this lack of turnout. The blueprint had been set by Monty Python. Perform live sketch comedy, get noticed, do a television series for a handful of years, and then when that ended, do a feature every three years. That was the plan. They had even begun introducing a kind of television language into their sketches, creating a side stage in the back room of the Rivoli, just to the right of the audience. They used this side stage to create cutaways during a scene, like you would edit a piece of tape. If they could just grind it out, maybe they'd get a show. After one Monday night performance, Andre Rosenbaum approached Bruce. Pretty small crowd tonight. Sure, it was a small crowd, Bruce thought, but it was a good show. Surely he had to see that they were onto something. Something special was happening in the back room on Monday nights. You guys been at this for a while now. Bruce was the most impatient of all the kids, keenly aware of how slowly things were progressing since moving to Toronto. I don't think it's working. I mean, I hear laughs, but guys aren't exactly drawing a crowd. They had finally found a regular place to perform, and now the owner of the club was telling him what. What was Andre trying to say? I think you should start considering what you're doing. Break up. That was the solution they came up with the next time they got together. Maybe they were wrong, and they were just meant to go the way of your average high school band. The five of them resolved to end things. Bruce might go on to do stand-up, Dave was receiving overtures from Second City, maybe moving on was the next logical step in their evolution as writers and performers. But before they'd do that, they would do one more thing. The kids would break their golden rule. They'd cross the streams, they would repeat their material. Before they called it a quits, the kids in the hall would put on a best of show.
when you walk through an art museum, what happens? You see some interesting things. You see some not so interesting things. <laughs> and if you're like us at all, you're probably a little bit sleepy. Well, grab a cafecito and listen up. It's Art Slice, a palatable serving of art history. We are both artists, so we look at art history through that perspective. We cover the artists you know and those that have been ignored for so many different reasons. We look at the context of the time. We compare it to today. We don't dumb anything down, but, and this is a big but, hey, we like to have a good time, okay? Nos gusta to goof <laughs> around, all right? We have hungry pantry bonds no, that no, might startle you. It's a long story. We, we feed them our materials. Art is just a visual language that is open for anyone to interpret. So if this all sounds good to you, join us on Art Slice, a palatable serving of art history. Get to know us, get to know us, get to know us. Buffalo 29 Late Night starts weeknights at 10 when the original five-year mission continues on Star Trek. Then at 11, it's zany comedy with the many faces of Dave Allen at large. And at 11.30, it's the hilarious antics of the newlywed game, followed by Alfred Hitchcock. 29 Late Night starts weeknights at 10. Get to know us, get to know us, get to know us. Buffalo 29, get to know us. August 1985. Kevin McDonald and Scott Thompson entered Tim Hortons. They were there for a coffee, a morning cigarette, and a free newspaper. The two lads searched through a sea of Toronto suns before they landed on a lonely copy of the Globe and Mail. They leafed through the paper to the entertainment section where they found what they had come for. Two eight-inch columns of text headlined in bold letters reading, The Kids in the Hall, Talented, Inventive. It was the first review of Lurching Seaward, their new show. They had cobbled together their best sketches from the past two years, rented a space to the Tarragon Theatre, and were slated for a week of performances. Kevin and Scott quietly read the review. It singled out Dave and Mark, and it ended like this, quote, Bruce McCullough's extended tour de force as grasping, hostile, hideously untalented Tramath must be seen to believe. Okay, well, maybe it stung that not all five members were mentioned by name, but it was a favorable review. They had spent the previous week papering Queen Street, handing out flyers to often indifferent, sometimes hostile passers-by, hoping to fill the 90-seat theater night after night. Hopefully this review in a national newspaper could move the needle, put butts in seats, even if they were there to see Bruce's performance. Pamela Thomas was a Toronto talent agent who specialized in comedians, and she had seen them perform previously and thought they were great. But Pamela was something else as well. She was connected to SNL. On behalf of Lauren Michaels, she was on the lookout for new talent. It was a rebuilding year for Saturday Night Live. After a five-year hiatus from the show, Lauren Michaels was returning as executive producer. Tarragon Theatre. Hello, this is Pam Thomas. I'm hoping I can talk to one of the members of the kids in the hall. One second. The early 80s had been rocky for the series. The original cast and writers had left with Lauren after season five. The show cratered until eventually finding its footing when producers discovered that they had a genius and then featured player Eddie Murphy. Murphy carried the show through the next three years, even hosting it once as a sitting cast member. That's how big Eddie Murphy was. When scheduled guest host Nick Nolte couldn't do the show, they threw it to Eddie. In that night's cold open, he rightfully declared, Live from New York, it's the Eddie Murphy Show! (laughs) 
In the season after Eddie left, Dick Ebersole, the show's then executive producer, put together a dream team of ringers that included Billy Crystal, Christopher Guest, Harry Shearer, and Martin Short, all signing for just one season only. Ebersole called it the Steinbrenner season. But now it was 1985. The ringers were gone and Lauren Michaels had to retool the show, and he was looking for new faces. By chance, Ivan Fekin, NBC's VP of Creative Affairs, was in Toronto at this time. He was helping Lauren with the retooling, and Thomas wanted him to see the kids' new show at the Tarragon. Bruce answered the phone. Hello? Hi, this is Pamela Thomas. I have some guests in town from L.A. and New York, and I would really like to get them into your show tomorrow night. Uh, Would you mind putting us on the list? Without a second thought, Bruce told her it wasn't possible. The show was sold out. When he told the rest of the group who he had just spoken with, they nearly murdered him. Pamela Thomas and Ivan Fekin did manage to see the last performance of Lurching Seaward and were impressed enough to nudge Michaels into the kid's direction. Later, she called Bruce again. Hey, this is Pamela Thomas. Lauren wants a closer look at you guys. Uh, would you be able to set up a showcase that we could see? Okay. Hoping to avoid whatever happened last time she tried to do something for the group, Pamela added. To be clear, Bruce, Saturday Night Live is coming to Toronto to see the kids in the hall. I need you to arrange a private audition. Got it. August 1985. Five members of the Kids in the Hall sat in the Rivoli Cafe. They had just performed for the SNL scouts mere minutes ago. The energy was awkward in the group, as across the table from them sat their adjudicators. Pamela was there, and this time she brought her husband, Dave Thomas. Oh, I'll do the intro this time. He's chug-lugging a beer. No, that's my guy. I'm Doug McKenzie. This is my brother, Bob, yeah, eh? Real good, eh? Real good. Ivan Fekin was there, and so was Tom Davis, and future former U.S. Senator Al Franken. Back then, Franken was best known as a writer and part-time performer on the early seasons of SNL, and more recently, for his and Tom Davis's frequent appearances on Late Night with David Letterman. Franken and Davis were OGs from Studio 8H. These were the people that were tasked with signing off on the kids in the hall to join the ranks of SNL, and the troupe just blew it. The SNL shot shook them. In the face of what they thought might be their only opportunity at rising from the status of ranked amateurs to professional comedians, they turned on each other. They fought tooth and nail in assembling the show. And this was a troupe that knew how to fight. It was one of their trademarks, almost a necessary component of putting together an original hour every week. Or so they thought. They could come to blows, spit on each other, break furniture, threaten to quit or even seriously quit only to return sometime later. Pausing from his soup, Tom Davis offered a half-hearted compliment. I thought you guys were really funny. It was cold comfort considering you didn't laugh during the show. The troupe knew they had messed up. The show was bloated. None of them had wanted to give up any of their individual sketches, so the audition was twice as long as it should have been. They also didn't take into consideration that they were auditioning for network television. They didn't smooth off the edges of any of their aggressively weird material. In one sketch, Brian's bombshell, Scott Thompson plays mother to Brian, played by Dave Foley, who has recently come out of the closet as gay. Brian's father is sent into a catatonic state by the bombshell, and the rest of the sketch is peppered with the gay panic projections of Brian's father as he imagines life ahead for his gay son, a life that includes a leather-clad lover named Attila. At the end of the sketch, Attila showers Brian with a bucket of confetti marked AIDS. It was a raw take on the AIDS hysteria and homophobia that was commonplace in 1980s suburbia. It was not only not ready for prime time, 
it was not likely to make it past network sensors. And for the SNL scouts, aggressively weird sketches like that made it hard to picture the kids in the hall on their show. Their stuff was light years away from Samurai Chef and Cheeseburger Cheeseburger. All dinner long, Al Franken sat back and didn't say much. He seemed to be mulling something over in his head, half in and half out of the conversation. Until finally, nearing the end of the meal, he said, The five of you are great, really. But what can SNL do with five guys? It was the very question that each of the kids had asked himself in prepping for the night. They never said it to each other, but they knew the likelihood of the five of them being picked up and relocated to New York was almost nil. This was the other fate of a successful sketch group, the one that they never dared speak aloud. If you didn't go down the Monty Python route and headline your own show and eventually do movies, you got cherry-picked. Sometime later, as the troupe readied for another show in the back of the Rivoli, news of their fate came. Bruce McCullough and Mark McKinney were headed to New York City to work as writers on season 11 of Saturday Night Live. And the kids in the hall were splitting up. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North is written and produced by me, Ryan Barnett, and presented by Knockabout Media, with additional voices provided by Matt Barnett, Susan Passmore, and Zonya Jamidi. This was episode two, Fast Times of the Rivoli. In two weeks, I'll be back with episode three in our five-part series. If you like us, follow us, rate us, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And we're available just about everywhere else. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Knockabout Media. In researching this show, I relied heavily on This Book is About the Kids in the Hall by John Semley and One Dumb Guy by Paul Myers, as well as print and online interviews and DVD special features. Special archival audio comes courtesy of Retro Ontario. You can follow me on Instagram at It's Ryan Barnett. Go there and you can follow the progress on my new graphic novel on the life and work of Buster Keaton. And until next time. Never put salt in the rug. Never put salt. Never put salt. Never put salt. Put salt. Put salt. Put salt. Put salt. Never put. Never. Never. Always put salt in your eyes. Knock about the media original. Hold on.